1: This episode contains homophobia.
2: This is a logbook entry from October the 19th, 1997. A woman may call back to discuss issues of custody with another woman this evening. I've given her the rights of women's phone number and lesbian line already. She got a phone number for a solicitors from us earlier, but called back to say it was wrong. I've checked this and now have the right number below, but she may well be able to get a better referral from the rights of women. Please pass this on anyway. Cheers, Monty.
3: This is a logbook entry from October the 27th, 1994. A woman rang in asking for info about artificial insemination or parenting. I said that I'd leave addresses on the log for her, as she said she'd ring back. I referred her to the Lesbian Alternative Insemination Group. Having kids?
1: Are you
0: asking, Tash?
3: Uh...
1: <laughs> Shall we? Uh... No. <laughs> You've totally thrown me out of. Some of my friends are looking into that, I mean, but the options are so different now to back then.
0: And it's definitely not equal to heterosexual experiences if you're trying to start a queer family of one form or another. There are so many more logistics and mechanics involved.
1: And not to mention all the laws too.
0: You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline.
1: In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1992 and 2003. I'm Tash Walker.
0: And I'm Adam Smith.
1: Episode 8, Interested and Willing. Talking about becoming a parent and queer families... We'll be hearing from lesbians seeking sperm in the 90s and gay men who became dads. People needing information and support on having a baby and the switchboard volunteers who took those calls with a wide range of perspectives on what queer family can mean.
0: Now, throughout the logbooks, we've been looking at the different prejudices LGBTQI plus people have faced. Many moons ago in season one, we were talking about the 70s and the early 80s we learn about how lesbians leaving their husbands struggled to get custody of their kids because they were seen as unfit mothers. Now, moving through the 90s, more and more lesbians and gay women experienced prejudice when they wanted help to start a family.
4: My name's Sally. I'm 54. I am a parent and an entrepreneur. So in the early 90s, um, it still was quite unusual to be a lesbian parent. And it was still not that easy to get information. Um, I remember at that time I had a very close friend and they had been turned down by a London hospital for a laparoscopy, which is what they needed in order to be able to conceive. And they weren't in a relationship. And just because they identified as a lesbian, that medical treatment was refused. So I supported them to make a complaint to the hospital. We were successful and now I'm pleased to say she's mum to a 22-year-old young woman.
3: I'm Anne. I was a volunteer at Switchboard from 1997 to 2012 and I'm 68. I think this was the start of the time where more and more women were wanting to have children and wanting to do it without um, a partner or with a female partner. From experience of friends who were doing this at the time and also I think it was influenced by uh, much more visibility of lesbian parenting on TV programmes. I think there was a soap opera, although I can't remember which one, where someone was investigating um parenting through insemination and of course there was a, a great concern at the time about 1994-95 that um the sperm that was used in these um inseminations might itself um have not been cle- cleared for um hiv aids And so I think a lot of women wanted to go through more formal insemination rather than casual insemination with male friends. Um, And it was very difficult to find referrals for them that they could afford because as always, if you have the money, you can get the service. But at the time, uh, for many ordinary lesbians, there was very little opportunity to go to clinics who would support them.
5: ability to access sperm banks. They refused to deal with or acknowledge lesbian couples. What ended up happening is that people realized that fertility is actually quite a low-tech issue. If someone is fertile, it's not that difficult to get pregnant or All you needed was a cooperative man. What became the norm was a whole range of ways of people working out for themselves how to not only become mothers or parents, but lots of women would want some involvement from men and very often would look to do some form of parenting with gay men, or there were also there's a, an interesting example that went on in Manchester where a group of left-wing medical students who were aware, many of whom were either gay or bisexual, but very aware of the kinds of challenges that lesbians were facing in order to become mothers, decided not only to be group donors for lesbians so that they could become mothers, but to support the ability for women to have anonymous fathers because of the issues to do with birth certificates and custody issues. There were were lesbians who did not feel safe if a father was identified on a birth certificate.
6: There is no doubt that I think more than any other time that, that I was aware of, that people were kind of being quite bold about asking other people to have children with them. And I remember being somewhere um, and a guy that I knew quite well and had been working with and considered a friend um, was there with me. And two women that I knew said, do you know that man and I said yeah yeah I do and one of them said go and ask him if he wants to be a donor I said what I said, ask him if he wants to have kids all right I thought this is a new take on my friend fancies you isn't it so off I went to go ask this bloke and I said that woman wants to know if you want to have a baby with her and he said why have they asked me they don't know me I said, I don't know. So I went back and said, he wants to know why you've asked him. And they went, he looks Jewish, boy, Jewish, want Jewish baby. So I went back to him and said, they don't think you look Jewish. And he was like, I'm not Jewish. I was like, well, they don't think you are Jewish. They think you look Jewish. He got the right hump. (laughs) Wouldn't do it. I think if they just said he was gorgeous or something, he might have done it, but he didn't like the idea.
1: All these stories of people trying to find a way to make it happen, as we see in so many logbooks from this period. And Sally was someone doing just that. We've heard
0: from her before in the logbooks. Now, in the late 90s, Sally, with her lesbian partner, began to investigate how to start a family.
4: So at that time, we didn't know anybody else that was looking to have children. Um, There wasn't much information available, There were no, there wasn't really a guidance of this is how you do it and this is the best way. So it seemed like everybody was experimenting and trying to find a way through. Um, So we knew that we wanted to use an own donor because we had heard of people who went to clinics, had one child. And when they went back to have the other child, that donor's sperm had all gone. So the children ended up um, having uh, different genetics, which for some people, that's absolutely fine. I certainly wouldn't like advise people on what to do. But for us, we wanted our children to genetically be the same. And I guess because I didn't find my birth dad till 23, we wanted the children to at least know who the donor was. But we didn't want them to be part of our family. And again, that's that's different for every person doing this. Um, But we were very clear, I think, what we wanted. First of all, we asked a few friends and they very sensibly declined, I have to say, because... I think whilst you would like to think you know what you would do when you have a child, I think it brings up a lot of intense emotions for people. And um, we felt actually in the end, it was easier to advertise and recruit somebody specifically so that we would then be able to say, well, this is what we want. And so we advertised in the pink paper. Well we thought by advertising in the pink paper we would um get some uh, people that were maybe about our same age um maybe were in uh, London or the surrounding areas so not too far to travel we just thought you know it might be a good publication for us to find somebody I do remember roughly what we wrote. We're looking for a donor. I think we might have said limited involvement required. And I think we also said no financial assistance required because uh, that can muddy the waters. So we wanted to make it very clear. We were the um, parents of the children. And whilst we did want the kids to know the person, they were not part of the family group more like an extended family member we were very clear we didn't want to use a heterosexual male as the donor because we felt they wouldn't fully understand our family and appreciate that they were not part of that Um, so we felt by selecting a gay man uh, we'd have more uh, opportunity to keep our nuclear family secure We wrote, we're a lesbian couple um, looking for somebody over the rainbow to make our dreams come true.
7: This is a logbook entry from December 9th, 1992. One last message from me. I don't usually write in here at all. A lesbian friend of mine is trying to become pregnant and is looking for a gay man who would like to be donors with minimal involvement. If there's anyone out there who's interested and willing, could you ring me and I'll tell you more and put you in touch. Thanks, Sarah.
4: After we placed the advert, we shortlisted a few people and uh, we met a few. um, Some were individuals, some were couples. The first couple we selected were in Leeds and um, unfortunately because the donor had a low sperm count that kind of stopped after a few months and then we selected another donor who we thought was suitable for what we wanted. They seemed very easygoing, a nice person and they didn't want to be involved as a parental figure. And so we took some time getting to know him, Um, we'd have meals, we went on a short break away together, um, just to make sure that we were really comfortable with what we were doing. And then um, in terms of insemination, we would either do that in a hotel or in one of the houses. Um, He would do his bit separately, deliver the material that we needed to us. And then um, we would uh, have sex and inseminate at the same time. And the reason that we did that, much to the horror of our children, is because we wanted them to know that they were born from love and so that it wasn't just a mechanical process. <laughs> they'll be mortified, they won't listen to this, but honestly, they'll be like, oh, fuck mum, did you have to tell the world? Lots of people in the LGBTQ plus community were thinking about how they could have children and there's quite a, a well-known couple that were living in Essex at the time who used surrogates to achieve that. Um, and for a lot of lesbian women, they were looking more at donation, but people were also looking at fostering and adoption as options because whereas that had not been approved, now it suddenly was starting to open up as a possibility. So... um I never, uh, like, biologically wanted to have children, but my partner did. So for us, it was a very straightforward discussion between us. Um, I think there was a lot of concern about would our children be bullied? Would they be very different? Actually, what we found after we had them is that there were other people in the same situation as us, other women that had had children via donation I have to say most of them had used clinics um, but they were not the only kids and I have to say like everybody was really supportive so the schools the health services we didn't face any discrimination from those avenues at all and at the end of the day you have to make decisions for yourself about how you want to live your life. And having children was very important to us to complete our family. I didn't care what the children called me. Initially, they called me Da, and then they called me Mum, and by my first name, Sally. I don't mind. I think it's... I don't feel a need to impose a label it became apparent as they got older that actually they wanted to have my name that was important to them and because I wasn't able to go on their birth certificates um so where it said father it was blank whereas now I, I would have gone on there so we changed their second names by depot to include both our names I worked and my partner looked after the children mainly, but we were both very actively involved in looking after them.
0: You never really know what you're going to have to face until you have the kids. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds like Sally and family handled it with openness and honesty.
1: Thinking about it, I don't think there was anyone in my school with gay parents that I know of. I think it would have been... Pretty unusual, um, and I'm almost certain they would have been bullied. Everyone called each other lesbians and gay as an insult um, at my secondary school. But I do wonder how Sally's kids handled it with other people they came into contact with.
0: Oh, Sally's got a cute story about this.
4: You know, we did sometimes have to raise issues in classes because they'd... uh... (laughs) when you're trained in a certain way, it takes time to unlearn what you've learned. So a teacher might say, um, what did you do with your mum and dad over the summer? And, um, you know, it can make you feel, well, I don't have a mum and a dad, but that's true for children who have one parent um, for whatever reason. So they had a big responsibility on their shoulders, really, to educate teachers and professionals to say this is my family and I think because of that it made them more protective and more strong in their sense of identity as as a family and with other children you know when they'd say things like oh where's your dad or they knew so they would go into details and they would say I don't have a dad my parents conceived me using sperm and you know when a child's five or six and uh, uh, this child then relays it to their parents um, that parent has to decide whether they ignore it or they engage in their own conversation with their child about different ways of conceiving children they had no issues about who they were. Um, Some of the children did and they would just calmly explain to them, you have a mum and a dad, I have two mums. And I remember my eldest going to a soft play area and I overheard her go up to this child and she goes, my name's Poppy. I have two mums and two cats and a sister. And it, For children, it's very straightforward and they don't understand why some other people can't see their family as simply as they do.
2: Hello, I'm Lynne and I'm 72 years of age. Hello,
4: my name's Elaine
2: and I'm 76 years old. Not that I'm boasting. I was Mm. quite um, conscious of the fact that, of his feelings really. Hmm. Well, I think it's always difficult. I think in those days it was difficult. I think even although we had um, a same-sex relationship with two mums and a son, I think it was always quite a difficult issue for us personally because of the sort of family dynamics that we had. I mean, I I welcome the fact that now in this generation with the grandchildren... Mm. That it's a much easier environment. I really do believe that, you know, us living the life we have and do live does facilitate anybody that's coming in the next generations down to be more accepting of themselves. And, you know, that's what we hope for everybody, is that we can be accepting of who we are and, you know, look forward to the day when people aren't shocked because I do believe... But even in today's world, there are just so many people that find it very difficult to accept when it's within their own family. I think they can accept on television that there's all of these other things happening, but they still harbour their own inherent beliefs that somehow a person's life should go the way that theirs did or that they think it should. So we're always learning, I guess.
0: There were so many changes happening in the 90s and early noughties.
1: More legal rights, the internet, changing representation on TV.
0: And shifts among fertility providers in how they worked with the law and the regulations about starting families.
1: Yeah, right. So our period in this season ends in 2003. But it wasn't until 2009 that two mums using a sperm donor to have a baby could both be recognised on the birth certificate as joint parents.
0: We didn't find any logbooks of calls from gay men looking to become parents, but we know they were around. So we spoke to one couple to hear their story.
8: My name's Tim. I'm 53. I live in Lewisham uh, and me and my partner adopted children in the early 2000s. We met at uni and um, became a couple in 1990, but he, Dave was living in Aylesbury And I was living in Hove, so quite a long way apart. So the logical thing to do after a lot of driving to and fro in various old cars uh, was to get a place together kind of in the middle, which effectively was London. And obviously, uh, Dave's a teacher, secondary school teacher. Uh, There's obviously quite a lot of schools in London. Um, So eventually he got a job uh, in a school in South London. So we moved to South London into a rented flat. And even in those days, uh I mean, in those days, even that was an issue because obviously there's no civil partnerships or any form of legal, there's zero legal recognition of gay relationships. So the first thing was uh, I was up front with the landlord who was a fairly conservative ex policeman, that we were a couple, because he was offering to change the double bed for two single beds. And we just went, no, we don't want that. And they kind of, they sort of twitched a bit, but they, they went with it, to be fair. And it was always fine. And they always referred to us as the boys. Which kind of slightly demeaning, but at least it was friendly.
9: I am Dave. Uh, I'm 56, uh, and I first started looking into uh, adoption with my partner in in the late 90s. And certainly in those days, you know, having children was just just not part of the equation. I think for 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 most gay couples, it wasn't really something you even thought was possible. Uh, and therefore, in a sense, you probably didn't you didn't sort of miss it, I suppose. It was a, a, because it wasn't something that was possible, and that was probably true, or it felt to be true, throughout uh, most of the nineties. I and mean, obviously, I I, I I like kids. I'm a teacher. I'd always worked with kids, and I suppose I thought that that was where I get my sort of like a sort of paternal fe- feelings or whatever out of the way. Not not that teaching is particularly paternal, but you know what I mean.
6: Of course, people started using the internet for that, and many for you know having children and many other purposes as well but um you could I remember saying somebody saying to me I've ordered my cryosphere the cryosphere being that freezing thing that you pop your sperm in (laughs) or rather sometimes you could order it and get your sperm in a cryosphere so it would arrive already in the cryosphere so yeah internet was very helpful for that
5: it was really brilliant of the London sperm clinic and they, they were the landmark organization that decided that they would take lesbian couples for their clientele. Lesbian couples were subject to exactly the same criteria for becoming clients as anyone else for the London sperm bank. But for a few years running, On the day of gay pride, people would get little lucky bags of giveaways, freebies of all kinds. And the London Sperm Clinic used to give out these beautiful pens. They were shiny, pink, pearl surfaced, uh, just terrific pens, if you like that sort of thing. But with huge bold writing on it that said London Sperm Bank and they were recognising the fact that gay men were a target clientele.
2: This is a logbook entry from the 21st of June 1994. Anyone who is interested? Jane from Anglia TV rang. She is doing a programme on gay and lesbian parenting. She asked if any lesbian or gay couples who wanted to talk about being a parent, especially through insemination, give her a ring if you want to be on TV.
4: This is a logbook entry from June 30th, 1994. Jimmy Young's show on Radio 2. Phoned to get someone on the air this morning about the lesbian custody victory yesterday. BBC Radio 4 phoned too.
1: 1994 and there are still lesbian custody battles happening. We first spoke to you about that in season one, episode five. You might well be very angry. There are a fair few high profile cases like that one mentioned in the logbook entry. Always LGBTQI plus people pushing to change the law and have their rights respected.
0: Yeah, and there are lots of victories like that. And of course, lots of babies. <laughs> but this stuff is hard. And it's not always successful.
8: I think the child children thing was several steps down the line, really. It was a long way down the priority list. Because c- we were still talking about getting equal rights at work from being sacked. I mean, I was sacked for being gay in the 80s from a temporary job. And for that reason only. as so, you know, rights at work, rights of inheritance, rights over property, rights of employment not being discriminated against at work more generally were much higher amongst our friendship group who tended to be mainly gay men it's completely off the radar wasn't discussed at all
6: I had always thought that I would have a child at least one I have several sibs myself I'd grown in i been with foster parents in houses where there were loads of children Um, there'd always been young people around me I'd always felt at home with children and so I thought That that was gonna be right for me. Not that I thought it was natural and all women should have children or whatever, but I did think it was right for me. And I think it had always been around that I was gonna have a child. And then I was in this relationship, we were very settled, you know, it was all going very well. Um, and there were just lots of really lovely people around me, and it felt like between us we had this mini village that could raise raise children well. It felt to me about this time in the early 90s, more than ever we were getting really creative about starting our own families and different shapes of families. And I certainly remember trying for a few years to do that. Um, coming unstuck a couple of times, coming unstuck, going to the black gay group, asking black gay men for their sperm and them not being terribly impressed. At least the ones present that night were not terribly impressed. And when I thought about it, I could see what their concerns were. They were saying, do you know how, for how long black men have been seen as studs, you know, the sexualization, the exploitation, you know, we come to this gay black group because we expect to be treated differently and now you lesbians come along and start doing the same thing and we're like, oh yeah, sorry. It's just that we thought it was going to waste. So, you know, sorry about that. <laughs> so off we crept. I only said it once. Oh my God, I'm going to say it twice. I remember quite clearly going along to the group. I think with somebody else and raising that topic and getting this response Um, and actually feeling a bit ashamed you know I wouldn't want to do that to to recreate those feelings in someone so I just thought shit, missed that one you know spending your whole life trying to be considerate with other people and then falling so badly (laughs) so yeah I only asked a black man for his sperm once so it was a, a while then a few years before um i thought thought about it again i actually de- decided that i would then have artificial insemination um and and that was you know that would be simpler, and I wouldn't have to upset anybody. But that is really expensive, and you have to talk to all sorts of invasive people and they ask disgusting questions, and they do terrible things. So that didn't last very long either. And a couple of goes at that. Like, not yeah, that's not nice. Um, and then, and then, a man who is so precious to me and was then and still is, um, said, "You know, we could do this." And that was, actually, it was lovely just being in that, just, just feeling that I wanted to, collab, to collaborate, yeah, to be that close. That's a weird word, right? It, but it was lovely to, um, I was in a partnership, he was in a partnership, so we were both, you know, in our same-sex relationships. Um, but it, all four of us had talked about it and thought that this would be a good thing to do. And there's something very lovely about a gay man I think he arrived on a moped on a Sunday morning and he produced the croissant, the Sunday papers, and a little file of spam that she'd kept warm. <laughs> yeah, we tried for a while. Uh, and I know a lot of others who have been very successful raised children in you know, non traditional families and. Uh, um, have raised spectacularly lovely children. I never did have a child. Um, It's a sadness to me. It's just a personal thing. I wasn't able to have a child. So it could have been great. And I think it was great for lots of people who chose to do it at that time. And I know children from that era.
0: Gosh, those kids are so lucky to have Femi in their lives.
1: Right? Shout out to Femi always. There are so many different ways to have children, including being helped by a surrogate. And that was the road that Kath and her partner took.
10: Just as it was very hard for me to, to lose custody of my kids and live with that, it was heartbreaking. I had a, a number of years which were very dark for me um, until I got them back. And, uh, you know, in a, in a strange sort of way, the 90s were some of my best years. Because my partner and I had a child, an insemination child, as opposed to the two from my previous marriage. Um, And who's absolutely adorable, still. So I have three sons. I'm Kath Gillespie-Sells, MBE. I am a 70-year-old woman, lesbian, shall I say. Um, I am a disabled mother and grandmother, and that's me. Yeah, he's quite a character. But he's, he's a lovely boy, very, very sensitive and and um, and just really takes the issues on, you know, as hard as they might be for him as well. Sorting out how he felt about not having a dad, having a donor. You're always asking yourself, you know, is, is this an OK thing to do? I'm not sure about he's Biological mother was asking that, but I was asking that because that's the kind of mother I would be. Um, I'm sure Dish had her concerns. But, you know, he he was... He's had his ups and downs, but he's a great kid. For the first time, as lesbians, we had control of our lives. We were doing what we wanted to do. Um, Disabled mum. I was... um, I was there when Deuce was giving birth in my wheelchair in the um in the room with with the, in the labor suite and um the doctor dealt with it perfectly well just, just explained to me what was going on as well as was and it was um yeah it was an amazing time so and i know we 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 privileged privileged positions because there was being a doctor and I being having had been a nurse and um, I was a therapist at that time just just uh, you know you know you have the language you know how to present yourself with the two professional to professional, so you make it that easy most people aren't that in that position I do appreciate that, but there is something whatever you're doing which is liberating and, and life affirming about being the person that
0: you can be. Oh, I love that message from Kath, because our minds and our hearts have big ideas about who we are and well, what we want to do with our lives.
1: That's right, and some people are so determined to become parents, they end up being pioneers too.
8: We were living in uh, Peckham at the time, and... Uh... Which is in Southwark Council's district, and um, they'd got a campaign of adverts on on bus shelters, and I think on buses if I remember, which indicated that they were prepared to consider adopters of all races, all genders, uh, and you know all sexualities, and that was explicit. It, I suppose partly it was a challenge. I thought, well, okay, you know they've announced this. Let's give them for a run for their money and see if they see if they believe what they say. I mean, what actually happened in terms of the two of us is, you know, we had a chat about it. Uh, we were actually on holiday. If I remember right, we were on holiday in Manchester, and we went to a restaurant which I think was called Livebait, which only served cold British shellfish, so winkles and whelks and all that kind of thing. And we had this enormous plate of the stuff that was like um, like those tiered cake stands, but with seafood on.
9: Uh, it was like a seafood buffet with with Everything cold and wet and slimy and whelks and everything
8: else you could imagine. Um, It was pretty horrific. And there was just tans. And after a bit, you thought, I've had enough cold, salty stuff. And anyway, I used this opportunity to say to Dave, well, you know, I would really like to think about this.
9: I was pretty gobsmacked, really, because it, it wasn't something I'd sort of thought about, particularly. I don't I don't know if we passed comment before like, um, on any adverts we'd seen, because local, local authorities were beginning to, to, to advertise for gay adopters.
8: Um, I said, well, you know, we need to agree, because if you are dead against it or seriously hesitant, then we can't do it. So, you know, you need to buy in. Um, and he he agreed he said let's go for it so um, then we contacted the council as gay people particularly as a gay couple appearing before the council wanting to adopt we were only the second in Southwark uh, and the other couple were only a few months ahead of us Um, and I think Southwark to be fair was fairly pioneering I don't know if they were the first historically but They were definitely the cutting edge in London. There's two main stages. There's a stage where you're approved as an adopter by the panel, and then there's a later stage where you're matched with children and that match is approved. Uh, Both stages were very long in our case. Uh, Being approved took a good 18 months, uh, and the social worker came round every couple of weeks and talked for several hours every couple of weeks or every week. It went on and on and on. So at one point I actually despaired. I thought, actually, you know, we've kind of proved a point by (laughs) being approved as parents, but we're never actually going to be parents. Uh, Generally speaking, we didn't get to the visit very often, um, because obviously we're talking to social workers in places like North Kent or Dover or Rotherham or wherever, really. Um, Great Yarmouth, I can remember, Exeter. Um, And I can remember one, one social worker said, well, we wouldn't consider you because this child needs to have a mother. So I was like, OK, well, that's that's a dead stop then, I'm not going anywhere with that. And then there was one child that uh, was from Dover, and um, two social workers came up in the car on a Friday afternoon. I think really they had no intention of uh, taking this seriously at all. They mainly just wanted to see a gay couple and see what was going on, have a look at our bathroom furnishings. Um, so they had a good look round, and um, the kind of telling part of the discussion was... Um, uh, her saying, "Well, who's going to be the mother?" And I said, "Well, nobody's going to be the mother. There won't, you know, there won't be a mother. There's two men." But I said, "If you mean who's going to do the motherly things, you know, the feeding, the tucking up in bed, etc., well, it's both of us." And I said, "You know, I think the idea that certain activities are only for women and certain activities are only for men is just really odd." And that's not true even in heterosexual (laughs) families, necessarily. Um, And, you know, that we can both be mothers and do do mothering. I wanted to shake them. I thought it was idiotic because I thought, well, okay, they're probably busy people and they have at least bothered to come, although probably on expenses and as a way of getting out of the office. But all that journey up in the car of two hours, they hadn't talked about this between the two of them and that they were so uneducated about parenting that it hadn't occurred to them that those kind of roles could be done by different genders. I was quite bored, actually. And I think there were others who were probably worse and I didn't even get past the phone, you know. (laughs) Yeah, the ones that are really prejudiced just didn't ring back. Our children now were born in Southwark. In fact, they were born just down the road from where we lived. Um, And their birth parents were from more or less around the corner. So uh, in terms of how the system worked, they were in the care of Southwark Council. They had been uh, taken into care at three days old in both cases. And therefore been in the foster system ever since. Uh, When you... Asked for details of a child. This may have changed now, but there was a Form E and a Form F, and I can't remember which one. I think the Form F was the child's form, and Form E was the parent's form. Um, Their Form E or F uh, was very sad. I actually cried because, you know, they're taken away at birth, fostered around the place, moved around a bit too much. Two failed adoptions. They're five and six there's two of them, and they're both boys, and apparently boys are less popular than girls for some reason, seen as more troublesome, I think. I cried because I felt sorry for the mother who had three children, all taken away at birth, suffered a lifetime of really serious mental illness, and then died in her 40s of breast cancer. And I just thought this poor woman's life was so sad. Uh, And the children were so unlucky, you know, obviously their social worker in the office spoke to our social worker in the office, probably across the desk, and the sort of beginnings of a, a match were made. Well, they sort of scratched their heads because it was a transitional case, I think probably with we the first of that type. Uh, might have been one of the first actual orders made under the new act for a gay couple, which meant that all the kind of paperwork didn't really work. Um, and the the birth so-called birth certificate which you get after an adoption, and um, uh, this is the registry office, they hadn't caught up with the changes. I don't think anyone had told them or told them what to do. So the, 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 the pro forma has mother, father. And they didn't know how to fill it in. They actually rang me up and <laughs> said, what do you want to put? And I said, well, you can't put mother because I'm not a mother, I'm not female. So I suggested that they kind of get their typewriter and put some Xs through mother and make it father one and father two, which is what they did. I think I was father one, and Dave was father two, and he wasn't very happy. You can't win, can you? Because what do you do?
9: And here were these two boys, because they were, they, you know, they weren't babies. They were, um, was it five and six, six and seven? They, you know, they were, they were old enough to know, you know, to be real, <laughs> sort of human beings who had their own minds, and just uh, that was so weird. You know, you, you you meeting these very lovely foster parents, but you, again, you were a little you were thinking, well. They know whether a gay couple. How do they feel about that? Because it was that, that you know that was always an issue. How do people feel about uh, gay adoption? Because it was so new, and you knew that a lot of people didn't think very highly of it. Uh, and then meeting the two boys uh, who were completely busy, and then it suddenly became very real because these are two you know these are two human beings that potentially are going to be spending the rest of their life with with you. Well, not quite that, but you know what I mean.
8: We didn't twist their arms. To get them to call us dad, and they never have. And that was because all sorts of adults have been called mum and dad by them, and then those adults had gone missing. And rightly or wrongly, I thought it was a bit coercive to say, you know, you've got to call me dad. And other people had done that. And then, you know, they'd moved on. I thought either they'll do that, and I would have liked them to have done that. But I think the moment it probably came was when their friends came round. And they, went, they just really casually just went, oh, that's my dad. So though they don't call us dad, they would introduce us as their dad. And that's when you think, okay. So there's a day where you pick the children up, where you get all the children's stuff and you put them in the car. And everyone who's adopted children says, you know, this is always a nightmare, this journey, because sometimes the children scream and want to get out of the car. Yes, you know, there can be all sorts of things. And in our case, I felt absolutely dreadful that day. And we got the children in the car and drove down the motorway. And I said to Dave, I've got, you know, we've got to stop the car. They were fine. They well, they weren't fine. They were probably really, really upset, but they were quietly upset. And they just had a bit of arguing with each other. And we stopped at a motorway service station and I threw up all over the shrubbery. I'd actually got some kind of norovirus thing. <laughs> I felt like shit. Uh, and so we took turns driving back, and then we all got it. The whole family got this norovirus thing. So the first week of them living with us was basically me cleaning up shit, uh, cleaning up vomit. There was vomit everywhere. You know, they, they were throwing out in the beds, they were throwing and it was just horrific. Uh, And in some ways, it was the best thing ever because they had to rely on us because they were really unwell and we all had to just get on with it and we couldn't go out of the house and we all just had to stay indoors and sort each other out until it was over. And so although it was really, really grim, in some ways it was quite a good way to start because they need you when they're ill and you just have to get on with it. And that's being a parent. Being a parent is holding the sick bucket.
9: I think gay adoption is really important because I think that there's the certain perspectives that you have, uh one of which is that the truth about adoption for most people, most straight people, is that it's second best. You don't get many straight people who want to adopt. Uh they start off wanting their own children and for various reasons they can't have them and then they adopt. And that, that was never true of us. It was it was never second best, it was always first first best.
1: Oh, such a fab story. And
0: pretty rare.
1: Which is interesting because we see that reflected in the calls to Switchboard, mainly being from women. But here's another man, a volunteer at Switchboard no less, who wrote this really sweet logbook entry.
11: This is a card found in the logbook dated August the 5th, 1993. Dear Switchboard, Although I have just resigned as a volunteer after some eight years off and on, would you mind sticking the enclosed card into the logbook? Our baby arrived this morning. Mothers and baby are doing fine. He has blonde hair and blue eyes and is looking forward to going on the Pride March next year. Best wishes, Pete. The card has a blue border with balls, teddy bears and ABC blocks. It says... We are proud to announce the birth of dot, 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 then the baby boy's name, date of birth, and weight of seven pounds and ten ounces. And where the card has a space for parents' names, there are all three, Sally, Tess, and Pete.
0: Oh, that's cute. (laughs) (laughs) I bet that baby's parents are really good listeners.
1: Oh, good one, Adam. (laughs) But seriously, I do feel like I grew up in Switchboard. And I guess it's because parents aren't always parents by biology or in law, right? We, queer people, often look to others, to, to parent us, even just for a moment, especially when our own parents don't accept who we are.
0: Yeah, that's why this next story is so touching. It's from DJ Ritu, who runs a club night called Club Kali, which started in the 90s.
12: I'm DJ Ritu. I consider myself a a music lover, a music maker and uh, a DJ and a broadcaster. Another memory that I'll share with you actually came later. It was in the 1990s at Club Carly, very shortly after we'd opened it. And we used to be at this big venue called the Dome in Tufnell Park. It was 500 capacity, packed. We used to get coach loads of people coming from Birmingham, from Manchester, from Leicester. And I said to my business partner, "Um, you know what, I want to bring my mum and dad here one day and let them actually see what I really do. And also, because I am fortunate enough to be out to my parents now, I came out to my parents in 1986 after I had some strength around me and that network of women from, you know, um, Gaze the Word, bookshop, but I'm I'm very conscious even now at Club Carly that most of the people that come there are not out to their parents. They don't have that parental approval, which is it makes such a difference, I think, to people's mental health and sense of well-being, you know. So my mum and dad came along and they sat right in front of the DJ booth. Just two elderly people, mum in her sari, dad in his suit, you know, and <laughs> probably they're sweltering away. It was very hot in there. And... um they were just calmly watching everything that was going on around them. And one of the funny things that happened that night, though, was um, there was one guy who used to come come along to the to the club. Uh, usually, he, he he would be wearing a short jacket and um, a skirt. Anyway, as I looked out from the DJ booth, Mum and Dad still sitting there really calmly, and the guy in the short jacket had taken off his skirt and his underpants and was just there in the short short jacket, and all I could see was buttocks. And I was thinking, for God's sake, out of all the nights when my parents are here, this is when he chooses to go naked, bottom down, right? And later on, my mum said to me, do people always take their clothes off when they come to Club Gali? I was like, no. Only on this one occasion. I saw people... Uh, punters basically just coming over to it and coming over to them and kneeling beside them and asking for their blessing. And I, I, I mean, I wasn't sure what to make of this because I was in the DJ booth and I working and I, so I I could only kind of read in terms of body language, what was going on. But my mum actually confirmed it later on. She said that um, she'd gone to the ladies, the women's toilets at some point. The thing is, all our drag queens used to use the women's toilets as well. And um, she said that when she was in there, four or five different uh, queens and one person that that wasn't a queen, they they spoke to her properly in the toilets and and said to her, auntie, thank you so much. Auntie, you know, it's a respectful term. Thank you so much for being here. I wish my parents were like this with me. I I beg you for your blessings. Just... (laughs) Makes me cry even, you know, thinking about it now.
1: Adam, do you always take your clothes off in the club?
0: And the studio.
1: Oh, I just noticed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Where do we go from here?
1: (laughs) Well, we've got to link this theme of parenting to today. And we've had lots of stories from the nineties and noughties.
0: So we're gonna hear from a bunch of people talking about their own experiences of queer families and their feelings.
13: My name's Ruby and I grew up with two mums in the 90s in London. In a nutshell, growing up with queer parents was brilliant. I remember enjoying explaining that I had two mums to my friends and to strangers when I was a child and loving the shock that it often caused. My parents were always very open with me about how I came about. My mum was nearing her 40s and wanted a baby, so rather than forking out the money to have everything done professionally, she and her best friend Joy hatched a plan. Joy's husband, Peter, would be the donor, my dad, and they would help my mum get pregnant. Joy and Peter already had two children, my brother and sister, so this would be their last hurrah before Peter's vasectomy. As this was happening, my mum fell in love with a woman called Deirdre, who would become my other mum and help raise me. Confused yet? The truth is, it was confusing. I once brought Deirdre home a Father's Day card from school and asked Peter if he was my half-dad whilst I was trying to get my head round it all. But the best thing about having two mums is that I was never unsure of how much I was loved and wanted. There are no accidents with gay babies. Every single one is desired and planned meticulously. They have to be or else they don't happen. My childhood was warm and fun and extremely loving. It didn't come without struggles. I remember the odd kid being rude at school if they didn't know what to say to me. I hope that happens less now but overall I wore my gay parents on my sleeve and was a lot happier for it. When I reached my 20s and wanted to come out myself no one gave me any grief nor was there a sense of disappointment that I wouldn't settle into a straight relationship because I'm proof that you don't need one in order to have children if that's what you want and a family if that's what you want and to be happy too.
14: Clip. Clip. Or clip. Mm-hmm. And... I'm Mama. I'm Mummy. I'm Aubrey. Hello.
5: That's just... That's a thing to, to go on the end of her... Sing, Go on the end of
4: her ponytail. Oh, lovely.
14: When I think about the conception of our daughter, I can't help but think of how heavily involved the internet was. Without technology, our daughter just wouldn't be here. We decided to create our family and use anonymous sperm donors. In the UK, all sperm donations are non-anonymous, so when the child reaches 18, they've got the details and the right to find their donor. But this wasn't always the case. This change in the law has led to a decline in donors, We discovered this when we approached our lacklustre GP and we were confronted with a platter of prices and charges for what they assumed we needed. Fertility treatment. Extra hormones, clinics, tests, etc. We had to fund our own attempts for six months before we would qualify for any financial support. It's a postcode lottery, apparently. Our GP and specialist gave us minimal personal attention and just handed us a menu of expensive treatments, we left bitterly disappointed. We didn't want or need any drugs or clinics poking around. We were only really missing one vital ingredient. Millions of people get pregnant every day, so surely it it can't be that difficult. At school, everyone's always trying to scare teenagers into not having sex for fear of becoming pregnant. Even the tiniest drop of semen can impregnate you from 50 metres in a swimming pool and other such rubbish. Well, when you're 30-something and actually want to get pregnant, you realise what a complicated task getting pregnant could be. What we needed was sperm. We considered asking some generous friends but found this too complicated with the what-if scenarios. What if they wanted to become a daddy once the baby was real? What do we call the donor? What do we do if the child decides he likes daddy more? Lots of what-ifs for the donor as well. There's no legal weight behind doing it this way. So we thought again. We used the internet to help us research. We discovered that in other, more liberal countries, sperm was donated anonymously and it could be shipped directly to your door. Oh, the convenience of a door-to-door delivery. So after months of preparation and planning, we browsed a Danish-based international online sperm bank. We matched my wife's physical characteristics with the donors. The range was Immense, and you could choose from a range of possibilities, each with evidence showing their credentials. You could read handwritten essays, hear voice clips of their motivation for donating, a log of their family history and medical conditions, as well as sometimes even baby photos to help you visualize how cute your future offspring might be. We chose a lucky donor and went about the complicated business of ordering and working out timings, shippings and delivery times to coincide with ovulation. When the precious cargo arrived, it was packaged like a futuristic drink from the Adams family in a vat of dry ice. My wife's job was to wear protective gloves and open and retrieve the sperm straws. Delving through clouds of smoke and dry ice, as quickly and as efficiently as possible, was akin to trying to win a TV game show like the Crystal Maze or the Cube. After popping the straws under my armpit for a few minutes to defrost and get to body temperature, it was time for insemination. And then, hanging around upside down for as long as you can stand it. Then it's the two-week wait, just like everybody else.
7: Hello, my name's Pete. I'm a 27-year-old queer person from Glasgow. It occurred to me only recently that coming of age in a time where queer family making was more visible than it had ever been, that I'd assumed if I wanted to be a parent later in life I could be or should be, that expectation turned into something more existential Like my newfound right to queer parenthood meant an opportunity to do right and rectify my own childhood experience by attempting to in some way perfect the childhood of a life, not my own, but still attached to it. And it occurred to me, how selfish is that? And how ignorant of me to assume that I'd have absolute influence for a curative outcome for myself, via the conceptual happy childhood of another and it made me question whether I want to be a parent for the right reasons and was the caring role superficial or an authentic impulse for me and what is the right kind of a queer parent anyway and particularly as opposed to the dead construct of a heteronuclear family and in adopting an approved of system as a queer ideal. I don't know the answer really and I'm not sure what kind of queer parent I could be or won't be in the future. I'm just being a queer parent to myself at the moment.
11: Hello, so my name is Finn, Finn Greg, or Finn the human as my young people often refer to me. I'm 37 years old. I'm from East London. I'm a trans guy, trans mask person. I identify as trans and queer first and foremost and as a guy after that sometimes. So I'm a youth and community director now of of Gendered Intelligence, director of youth and community services. But when people ask me what I do, I often go youth worker. I mean, I'm the director of a charity and I, "Mm, I do a lot more. But our own individual journeys as to whether or not we want children in our own sort of way or own lives is is fascinating as queer people because you can't just well you can go to bed with someone and make it happen but for a lot of LGBTQ plus people you can't just go to bed with someone have sex and make it happen but for a long time and still and probably forever I will see my my organization and my young people that I've worked with over the last 15 years as my family and you know I have worked with hundreds maybe more thousands of children over the last 15 years and I love I have loved every single one of them and still do. And I say that really confidently and really clearly uh, because of the meaning of love that for me is is not about romantic love. And I don't even know if that exists, but it's about real love. And uh, I think Bell Hooks talks about it as um, respect, commitment, re- responsibility, listening, kindness um, and all of those things. So, you know, I see some of the young people that I used to work with 10 years ago are now in my staff team at G.I., Um, Some of them come back and get in touch with me, some of them are volunteering, some of them are still young, but they've come, they've stuck with us and they've been with GI for, I saw a a young person who's 19, I saw her on Saturday and she said, oh, I remember my first group and I was 13 years old at GI and I was like, gosh, and she said, I'm going to be 20 in two months, I was like, that's seven years that you've been around and come to GI, and I remember the camp that you came on when you were fourteen, and we sang your we sang you "Happy Birthday" fourteen times across the day, and you didn't know what was happening, and, and then we started having a laugh, and we, we were on the coach on the way home, and you hadn't, you had only got to twelve or thirteen times, so we had to sing once on the coach, and then we got off the coach, and we sang once in the car park when your parents were picking you up, and they were like, "What's going on?" and everyone was singing "Happy Birthday" again because so you had to sing fourteen times, and yeah, just like I can remember tons and tons of moments like that with young people over the last 15 or so years and um and starting an organization from scratch and and seeing teams and staff and volunteers go through there for me that's you know i said i said i said to friends you know, i said to my partner like if something was tragic was to happen to me and i died soon you know i'd go to my grave really happy already thinking i've got a massive family and community around me and yeah how lucky how lucky am i for that
0: This has been a very family-friendly episode. The next one definitely is not.
1: <laughs> so join us in the darkroom and playpen as we hear all the stories from the 90s about kink and fetish sex. Dash, pass the poppers. <laughs> Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed caller's details.
0: The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith, in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline, and supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund.
1: If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at logbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag thelogbooks.
0: Our music is by Tom Foskett-Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to... Steph Dickers and the team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, Content is Queen, David Pye, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard and everyone who shared their stories with us.
1: Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630. Email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.